Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. We were actually supposed to have a week off this week, but I figured there is an eight-hour Beatles documentary. How many times are we ever going to get a new eight-hour Beatles documentary? And how many times are we going to have Rob Sheffield available to talk about it? So this is not a week off. This is a brand new episode, and we are doing it from an amphitheater in Libya. I'm very psyched about that. It's beautiful (laughs) here. We took a boat to get there, uh, brought a whole crowd of fans (laughs) <laughs> and I, I want to thank uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg had a very good idea. We are here in Libya, and the Beatles really made a mistake by not coming here. But, you know, it can't be perfect. I think the idea of the boat is completely insane. <laughs> I was not prepared for how funny it was going to be to have the running unintentional joke of how about Libya, and which is, of course, what the director of Let It Be, Michael Lindsay Hogg, who directed all the footage that's in the Get Back documentary and is an unintentionally comic character often in the Get Back documentary, Peter Jackson's version, he just will not go let go of the Libya thing. And I think my favorite Libya moment, you might disagree, is when George leaves the band. The Beatles are at the moment a trio, and Michael Lindsay Hogg again brings up Libya in that context. <laughs> like, how about Libya now with only three Beatles? Unbelievable. And the thing is, Paul McCartney told him very clearly the first day. And Paul McCartney, whatever you say about the guy, he will tell you what he wants, and that's what he wants. He's not open to negotiation. If he if if he is open to negotiation, he'll tell you that. But Paul tells him the first day, no, we're not traveling abroad. And the guy just won't stop nagging him about it a hundred times a day. This is get back is among other things a tribute to the Beatles' saintly patience. <laughs> I I think the moment when I fell in love with this documentary was very early on when, so George had a, a Hare Krishna dude just hanging around in the background and John Lennon looks at him and says, who's the little old man? Which is, of course, a reference to a line in Hard Day's Night. And just, there's something about that that was just so wonderful to see that they're doing little callbacks to their own movies was unbelievable to me. Let's face it, Get Back, an instant classic. Beatle fans got fed. We got fed basically any 10 minutes of this. You could just imagine like how much, you know, we would have feasted on it for years and how much we will feast on it for years to come. There's so much in this and any random 10 minute stretch of it has just so much to treasure. It's really kind of almost literally too much to physically absorb. There's a ton and there's so many moments that have subtext that you really need to know a ton about the Beatles to understand at the deepest level, but you can also understand it just as a document of the creative process of which it now rises close to the very top when it comes to just showing how a band works, how an album is created. It's incredible. And I think part of the the length is key to that and it's key to also that sense of 
oh, wow, we're hanging out with the Beatles. There was something so precious about that to me to get that much time with them. Yeah, it's really incredible. And we see their friendship from so many angles. They have all these private jokes, the private language. There's a great part where Paul is talking about the work schedule and he's like very upset. And like John is answering him with lyrics from Beatles songs. So, you know, Paul will say, oh, to wander aimlessly is very unswinging. And John will say, but when I touch you, I feel happy inside. And they just keep this dialogue going. And the fact that even in this kind of crisis situation, they have that Beatle telepathy, that Beatle code that, that nobody else on the outside can break into. It's really just a beautiful thing to see how they communicate with each other in, in the midst of this. I think one of the things about the length is that it starts to approach real life <laughs> in, in its vividness. And what that allows us to do is you and I can see different movies in some ways, or any two viewers can see different movies or can interpret things differently or pull different things away. I, I, you know, I, I saw a lot of the camaraderie. I also saw moments of very subtle, almost microaggressions between the Beatles and these, these very quiet, hurt feelings. Uh, one of my favorites is when Paul casually says, oh, you know, Get Back is the, the first song we all really dug. And John goes, well, you know, uh, I dug uh, I dig a pony and, and, uh, and Don't Let Me Down. I thought those were pretty good. You know, it's just, and it just goes, and you, and you can see just the, it, it, they still, they, they have the ability to uh, communicate their love for each other and also the ability to really, really hurt each other in the most passing moments. And I, 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 I think both are, are on display. Yeah, the full emotional pageant of them being Beatles together. And, you know, it's wild how fast the pace is. This is just barely three years after they made Rubber Soul under very similar conditions. They had a crazy deadline. They had to crash out a whole album in two weeks, three weeks. And that time, you know, what they came up with was Rubber Soul. So they thought, hey, we've done this before. We can do it again. And the amazing thing is that this footage that, for so long was presented under this really lousy documentary called Let It Be, which fortunately has been out of circulation and probably will never be watched again, probably almost literally by anybody, um, the, which basically amounts to just disinformation about the whole process. Uh, it's really amazing to see so many of the scenes and get back and think, yep, he left that out of the movie. Yep, he left that out of the movie. And But especially the get back scene where they, they sit down Early in the morning, Ringo and George really don't want to hear about Paul's ideas yet. Ringo is rubbing the sleep out of his eyes. George is yawning in his face and making no effort at all to hide it. And Paul's like, well, I was thinking this, and he starts playing. And then you see George snap to attention. And no matter what personal issues, emotional issues George is feeling, he can't help but notice the song. He notices it. He starts strumming along. Ringo starts doing those hand claps. It's unbelievable. We see this song go from non-existent to get back in a minute. It's just an unbelievable. And there's no comparable footage of, of creativity at work. Astounding that this even exists. Yeah, I would say that that scene is as close as you can come to something becoming instantly legendary. You could see Twitter lighting up with that moment. And in fact, it's so incredible that we already have truthers. I don't know if you saw this, but there's truthers of this moment who cannot believe what their own eyes were seeing. They, they think that you know, Paul must have created that, you know, at home and was kind of just, you know, bring it back. But no, I mean, what people can't grasp, I guess some people can't grasp is that's how it works sometimes. You just come up with stuff. If you're Paul McCartney, at least, if you're, you know, that 
you actually watch that song come to be from nothing. And it's an extraordinarily rare thing in general, but to see it with a famous Beatles song is just wild. And yes, while I, I would, I think I'm tempted to defend Michael Lindsay Hogg a touch more than you are and defend Let It Be a touch more than you are, there, it is sort of like, well, you, hard to see how you leave that bit out. <laughs> I think we yeah, can agree. An awful lot of that. An awful lot of that. But yeah. we see so many moments of really beautiful interaction with the Beatles. We see their loyalty to each other, which is just really touching throughout. Something I love about the many discussions, as we were joking before, about the many idiotic conversations about Libya that the director wants to have. <laughs> Paul told him the first day, he said, we're not going to do this because Ringo doesn't want to do it. And for Paul, that's the end of the discussion. He's not interested in negotiating with the director about maybe changing Ringo's mind. Paul has totally got it set, settled in his head. Ringo doesn't want to do this. And they're holding the line together. The, the Beatles solidarity is really kind of beautiful. I love the way Paul puts it. Is is I think you'll find we're not going abroad, actually. <laughs> Which is just beautiful Paul McCartney speak for Ringo's a Beatle, you're not, and I've already decided you're a bit thick. The whole project is predicated on this insane devotion to Ringo's shooting schedule to a movie that that history will never care about, which is what... But more than that, Ringo doesn't travel well because of his stomach and because of right, right, his right. health. No, but I, well, that, well, that's why he wouldn't travel to Libya. But the whole deadline, the whole impetus for the time crush of this project is because, they, is because they're working around Ringo's shooting schedule for a movie. And that is touching in itself. It's, they're, they're taking Ringo's schedule very, very seriously. As was Glenn Johns taking his own schedule very seriously. I don't know. Who was he? I was trying to figure it out from his timetable. Who was so important in L.A. that he had to leave the Beatles for? But there's so much of that in this. And that's something I love about the creative process. There's one part where they're working on a song and Paul's like, well, John's got a thing at 1.30 and I've got a thing at 1.30. So we'll meet back. And it's like, well, what was this? Like a dentist appointment or something? Just like cancel it. You're making an album here. It's, it's funny, but, you know, like for them, they made all their albums this way. They were in the middle of life. I do think that the, the George leaving segment and the fuller context around the famous moment that some people may only know from the anthology when, uh, you know, the, when George says, I'll play anything you, anything you like or I won't play at all, probably one of the most, already one of the most famous music documentary moments in, in the history of music. I don't think it necessarily, personally, I don't think it softens the conflict to see more of it. I think it only kind of brings it, it brings it up. And you do see Paul's dynamic, that Paul is trying to be the taskmaster, and understandably, because they're, they're left without one. And, but also he does, there's that moment when he's telling George what to play, and he's basically like, do less, you know? <laughs> He's like, dude, he's like, he's like, what if you just played like sort of the offbeat with Ringo? Like basically he's like do nothing until you're solo. And it, it's, and you can see George boiling, you know, and having just read a bunch of Paul biographies, you can certainly the many members of Wings can relate to, to that moment. I mean, that, that's something I hate about Paul biographies, the members of Wings complaining they don't oh, have creative input. You yeah. join Paul McCartney's band, you sniveling twerp. Get over your, let me write a song for side two, Paul bit. That's, I, that's something... I mean, the thing about Paul McCartney is, is when he knows what he wants, he can't help but saying it. He can't say like, okay, George, maybe you can play it. And we could just edit it out. No, you know, he's like, because he's just so in love with the music in the moment, he, he has to say it. As he said in the great Rick Rubin documentary, 321, which until this week was the year's best Paul McCartney related music documentary. But 
Paul said, yeah, every time the Beatles would come up with an idea, I'd think, oh, wow, and we could do it this way. And they hated me for that. It was really funny that he can laugh about that, but that's, that's the essence of what made the Beatles the Beatles, is they had this guy who was always thinking of another way to do it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. There's a moment in the famous uh, John Wenner interview with John Lennon where he talks about his vision of his interpretation of what went down at these sessions in the documentary. And hilariously, his complaint is that Paul wanted them to rehearse a lot. And he said, we're grown men. And, and, and you're sort of waiting for the dot, 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 like what and end? Like, but basically, it's just like... <laughs> It's like he expected us to, you know, get the songs perfect. We're grown men. And it's like, well, but what? Like, it's just. That's so, so nice. <laughs> yes. So, so George then does stomp off. And uh, it, it's interesting, according to Derek Taylor and other people, what actually went down, the mo- and the movie does perhaps elide this or just doesn't get into it. But part of what went down at the meeting that there's a meeting at George's house, and the movie tells us it didn't go well. Apparently, if you believe Derek Taylor, and you may not. Uh, a lot of that meeting was George saying uh, Yoko needs to get the fuck out of these sessions, which is interesting and, and, and explains why we then see this scene where Paul's saying it will be ironic, it'll be funny in 50 years if they say the Beatles broke up because Yoko sat on the amp. That's the context for that, which is very interesting to me. Uh, and it's also interesting that that was part of what was bothering George because you'd never, you'd never know from the movie. But it's understandable like that, that you know, for George, he's the junior partner. He's always waiting to get his songs heard. and then suddenly he's demoted in the pecking order to where, you know, like John's new girlfriend is now higher in the pecking order than he is. It's an awful lot for somebody of of George's talent to be asked to shoulder. And and something we see, I I love the great way when he's early on, when he's playing All Things Must Pass for the band, and he's saying, this sounds kind of like the band, you know? And and later we see him doing a Dylan song and and it's his subtle way of saying, you know, I hang out with these people in Woodstock and they don't make fun of me. They like they they treat me like I'm an artist, and it's it's funny to see that George has gotten used to him when he talks about Eric Clapton that that he has peers who think of him as a world class musician, and John and Paul just think of him as like yeah okay we'll find something for George to do in this song. You can see why it's so galling to him, and you can see why the song that drove him to the edge was Two of Us, which is you know every time they, there are so many versions of Two of Us in, in the Get Back movie, and they involve so many different types of john paul interaction and we know it's a song that john wrote about driving with linda but to see so much how much of that song comes from his interaction with john and he wrote on the sheet music another quarry men original so there's something about this song is really tied up into paul john long friendship and and 
you can see that that's the song that George finds. Like, I have to watch this? Like, unbelievable. You guys are going to do this right in front of me. Well, yeah, I think, I think even the title was taken as an affront, perhaps. It's like, oh, there's two of yeah. you, huh? Yeah, <laughs> it's like, just two of you, right? That, that's, that's all that matters is the two of you. I see. I see how it is. I, I, yeah. All right, fucking Krishna. <laughs> there's a famous, it, it reminds me of when Paul wanted to get a, off Apple Records uh, years later. And uh, Paul remembers George saying, you'll stay on the fucking label. Hare Krishna. <laughs> <Yes>. uh, <laughs> it's, it's so great. I love that. John and George sent Paul the incredibly nasty note saying they were going to release Let It Be ahead of his solo album. And, and George just wrote at the bottom, P.S. Hare Krishna. And was, with George, that was like always the perfect way to cap off a really stinging insult. But you know, you, you could see the two of us, that, that the John Paul thing, and he was always, you know, Back at school, he was the younger kid hanging around John and Paul, wanting to be accepted by them, riding on the top of the bus with them with his guitar, really wanting to be accepted by them. And uh, you could see what a difficult situation it is that even at this late date, he's still not part of the Lennon-McCartney bond. The noise jam, which I'd read about for years, we've all read about for years, that ensues after George leaves with Yoko on vocals is awesome. I'm glad you wanted more of that. Yes. Uh, I, I, I think we got about enough of that. The, honestly, the context for that, it's just so astounding how like George quits the band at lunch. And they're like, oh, let's continue, you know, in the afternoon. And John says straight out, yeah, pretend nothing's happening. And so, you know, they're rehearsing songs. John says to the empty microphone, take it, George. Um, and, you know, Paul starts like climbing around in, in the scaffolding, like he's a little kid playing. And it's like, wow their life is falling apart, their band is falling apart, their world is falling apart. And they're just absolutely in shock and have no idea what to do about this. And the director is saying, you know, this reminds me of one time with Orson Welles. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> there's, I think it's when Peter Sellers arrives, there's a moment when G John seems to be basically bragging about doing heroin in slightly coded la language. And Paul looks like he's going to crawl out of his own skin. And that's when he says, you know, Mr. Lennon in this semi, and it's this way they communicate in jokes when they're very serious, but he says something like, Mr. Lennon, must you do this in public? Yeah. Kind of the, thing. And, 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 and it's so great when John says like, yeah, you know, like, you know how you're hanging around getting stoned and you just see Paul just like look right at, up at the camera in alarm. It's, yeah, it's really amazing. I will say I'm very sympathetic to Yoko. I will say it, she doesn't often seem to be approving of the music that's happening around her. And, but when she does, it's so funny. Like, for example, the one time, one of the few times she really gets into it is, I think, during For You Blue, which is a pretty throwaway song, but she just loves it. And I was, I was like, whoa, what is it that Yoko's responding to in this one out of, yes. <laughs> out of all the songs? I love when they're doing Commonwealth, which is the early version of Get Back, where it's a protest song against racist, right. anti-immigrant protesters in England. And it's so funny that you see both Yoko is air drumming on her lap and also Linda is drumming on her lap. And it's like, wow, this is one where, you know, I love when they get into it. And it's funny because Yoko is, you know, yes, she's usually, you could see she's making an effort, A, not to look totally bored out of her skull and B, uh, not to interfere with her musical ideas. Um, but I, I, I love when you see her dancing around to For You Blue. That's a, a absolutely great moment. Which also reminds me of, when John just mercilessly mocks Teddy Boy in the middle of it, starts going do-si-do. -si -do. What I loved about that, because one of the things I was looking for is, is caught on film moments that show you what 
other famous moments must have been somewhat like things you read about in the Jeff Emmerich book or whatever. There's all these weird callbacks to Obladi Obada, which is weird until you remember that the White Album had just been recorded a few months earlier. John seems to be kind of, he's, he's expressing sort of, he's retroactively still mocking Obladi Obada, but also maybe having some of this, it's complicated, but also sort of admitting that it's a catchy song, but he keeps doing callbacks to it, which is very strange. But the contempt that John has in real time for Teddy Boy, which of course ended up on, on Paul's solo album, and he, he said that you know he always tried to interest the Beatles in it, and it just never went over. And you can just see how John, without directly saying, I don't want that on a Beatles album, would communicate, I don't want that on a Beatles album, I do not like that song. And it was up to Paul whether to push the issue, as he did with Maxwell Silver Hammer, <laughs> over how, and over again. How funny is it to see them playing that and they're all smiling and really enjoying it? And it's like, wow, you guys are so busted. You've been lying about this song all these years, like claiming that you hated it. You could see, wow, these guys were really into Maxwell Silverhammer at first. I think part of the thing was it wasn't just that Paul insisted on recording it for Abbey Road. And of course, one of the things you see is there's so much of Abbey Road taking shape on this album because, again, it's just a few months before because. They were working on some kind of compressed timetable that doesn't even make human sense when you analyze it from the outside. But it's not just that he made them record Maxwell Silverhammer for Abbey Road, but he also apparently insisted that it could be a single and so put extra time in on it, on this song that they, they grew to hate, uh, and uh, John in particular. And so I think it's, it's, it's wrapped up in that, I guess. I love the story that John supposedly wanted Dylan to hear Abbey Road and made a version without Maxwell Silverhammer to send him. Bob Dylan still doesn't know that song exists. He found out when he was watching this documentary. It's the first time he knew. The Maxwell Silverhammer content is really funny. And one of the great scenes, Mal Evans, such a beautiful role in, in Get Back, because the general public, they know Mal Evans' name because the Beatles always talk about him when they tell stories. But this is the first time that most Beatles fans are getting to see Mal Evans up close, see what he looked like, see what his role was with the band, how much they depended on him. Like he was getting their lunch, he was getting their cigarettes, he was getting their guitars. And like you see George say, uh, yeah, Mal, could you like run out and get me some lace bow ties? <laughs> and oh, Mal, what's the name of a really good high-end shoe shop in London? And but the best Mal scene when, when Paul says, Mal, um, we should get a hammer and an anvil. And you just see, like, Mal pause, and he's like, I didn't ask these questions. I, I, I just follow orders here. But it's it really beautiful to see what a trusted and valued member of the Beatles circle he was. Yeah, there's moments when he's weighing in on the lyrics. And no, one, and no one says, what the fuck are you doing? You're the goddamn roadie. I <laughs> you know, love that. It, 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 it was, uh, I thought Paul had a great unpreciousness to him about that stuff, and especially the way he was. There's a random kid on the set and he's, he's explaining how chord progressions work and how all the, all the old-timey music hall songs have the same chord progression. It's just very generous. It's really beautiful. I will say to those at home, if you're enjoying the documentary and you enjoyed seeing Mal Evans, don't Google what about his later years. Just assume it, it all. <laughs> assume everyone lived happily ever after. It's best not, to, best not to look. And that is one of the things that there is this Occasionally, there's this air of tragedy that, that overlays it if you think about it. And I, one of the things that really got me, and I think you mentioned in one of your pieces, is, is when Paul says, you know, when, when we're old, we'll, we'll, we'll get along and we'll all sing together. Unbelievable. Uh, and that, that yeah. broke, kind of broke, broke my heart a little bit. Uh, and, and yet, you know, it's, it's kind of come true. You know, like all four Beatles aren't still alive. But, you know, it is over 50 years later. And 
these songs are more popular, more well known now than ever. And the fact that we're, you know, sort of globally sharing in this eight hours of up close and personal hang time with the Beatles, it, it's really kind of amazing how this friendship has just outlasted everything. And in that moment, when it's, yeah, John and Paul sneak off to the cafeteria for a private chat, just the two of them, no cameras, no microphones allowed. And then we find out that they were hiding microphones in the flower pot. Like, unbelievable. And we hear John and Paul talking about some fairly serious, fairly personal stuff, fairly emotional stuff. And, you know, absolutely zero performative about this because they have no idea that anybody is listening. It's just the two of them. And the honesty with which they talk about it to each other and the respect that they bring to it, like they sound like they've been through couples therapy, like the way John keeps saying, I'm not blaming you, you know, like this. And the way that they're so attentive to each other, such so amazing at listening to each other. And it's just mind blowing that, that we get to be part of this moment and that this exists. The moment when Paul shows that self-awareness and talks about how the, the cycle of songs could be about how their lovers is 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 amazing, you know. I, I, uh, I feel like I've waited my whole life to hear John and Paul have that conversation. It's so funny. Like, also, I love when Paul decides to turn into a rock critic for for a bit, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, like after we get back, we're on our way back home. It's it's kind of a plot, you know." Um, but it it it's so funny. John just says, "Yeah, it's like you and me are lovers," and Paul's like, "Yeah," and it's like, "Wow!" Like they're it's really kind of an amazing conversation. I did want to talk about John for a minute because one of the many, many things that struck me is just a reminder of, my God, the level of this man's charisma. Even at, at some points, in some points, it was, it was a low point for him. There's always a lot, a lot of low points after the, the mid-60s for John in some ways. He's dabbling, at least in heroin. But the camera loves him, and he's just, he's so striking, just a, a physical presence. And then I felt that's his sort of fabled, surreal, occasionally obnoxious sense of humor. I felt like it was the first time I really, really got to see and feel what that was like in real time, to what that was really like. Because you, you wouldn't get a sense of it unless you get to spend this much time with him. And I, the, the great example is the way he kept doing callbacks to the thing that Michael Lindsay Hogg asked him if he wanted to possibly record an intro for a part of a Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which he had done a performance with Eric Clapton for. And then for like days, he's doing riffs on uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, your host, the Rolling Stones. And it's just, it's so funny, but it's also, it's funny in the way that someone you know might be funny. You know, it, it's just a, a personality thing. The way you see that is just like nothing else. It, it, it just feels like really knowing him for a minute. Absolutely. You know I mean? Yeah. And for, for all of them, you know, we see their personalities, we see their personalities at, at extremes. It's really interesting with John because in, in the first episode of the three episodes, he's often very disengaged. He's kind of like off and on. And then, you know, it's he's like... He's on heroin rub. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and grief. There's a lot going on. There's yes, a lot going on. Yeah. Um, and, and also he's like macrobiotic diet. He's basically eating cardboard. It's not, it's not good. Um, but then the second episode, you know, he really like sort of like brightens up as soon as they go to apple like it, it completely changes emotionally and it's really amazing that you know from there to the end you know like the final you know five hours of, of the eight hour thing like john is on and he's like absolutely 
cheery and engaged and he's there with the others emotionally. And you can see what a powerful thing that was for them as it is for us. But you can see how, you know, John's wanting to be the center of John's attention is, you know, you can see how the Beatles would get addicted to that because he's so charismatic, as you said. Love the moment where Linda brings her toddler daughter, Heather, in. And she's talking about, you know, they just had kittens and John asks when they're going to eat the kittens. And it's really funny because he's doing this deadpan and he's so funny at her level. And she's just like screaming, no, you don't eat cats. They don't taste good. And it's, it's so funny that he's able to, you know, to adapt on that level to, to her level of conversation. But, you know, everybody, everybody really like thrives when John is thriving. Yeah, it explained a lot for me in some ways. It explains why Paul, even at the height of his success, cared so much about Lennon's regard and his opinion. Even when Lennon was in, you know, three years of writer's block and Paul's like conquering the world, Paul is still, you know, in interviews at the time, is still so interested in what John thought and, and, and looking for his approval and, and hurt by his disapproval. But, but then you understand, I mean, this guy was just, you know, just had an unearthly presence and a strength to him and a little bit of scariness, a little bit of like, you can see how you'd be a little bit scared of that mood turning. You know, it was just a formidable cat, even as, even as you see Paul obviously being in a stronger moment of creativity is something that had been happening for a couple of years. But that said, I mean, I dig a pony. Don't let me down. As John said, pretty good. <laughs> you know, it's not like, it's not great, like he wasn't songs. doing anything. You yeah. know, it's weird. It's weird, actually. That those, those songs are, are, are musical twins, actually. They have, uh, there's parts that are like the same chords. They're very clearly derived from each other in, in a way. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. They're very, it, which also does suggest that maybe he was running a little dry, you know, at, at that moment. But, but the, I, the I Dig a Pony riff, if I may geek out for a second, is one of the greatest Beatles guitar riffs I probably only matched by, you know, Day Tripper or Ender Bird Can Sing, just a few others. But what a, what a great and tricky riff, actually, uh, which is why St. Vincent covered it. And that gets to the thing of just, Seeing them as musicians is so important to me. And just reminding yourself that, you know, until, at least until Bernie Preston shows up and they get some help, they had to, there's silence, and then they have to manifest a Beatles record. <laughs> it's all happening in that moment. They're playing everything while they're singing. I mean, these are very basic things, but it's just easy to forget. They have to do all this. And that's why when John complains about having to rehearse and get it perfect, it's because they're not just the Beatles who, have, who get to write the songs and have to sing, they're also the, their own backing band. I mean, this is basic stuff, but it's just easy to forget. They have to learn everything. He has to learn all of Paul's songs. He has to learn his parts on Paul's songs, even the ones he might not be crazy about. You know, it's a whole thing. It's hard to be. It's a lot of work. Absolutely. <laughs> to be in the Beatles. Uh, yeah, the musicianship just, is just, it, it, it's insane. Um, seeing Ringo, I mean, you know, you and I, we, we love Ringo to see like how amazingly dead on he is every time through these days and days of rehearsals where it would be very understandable if he were sort of bored at a, a certain level. And Ringo is always, always elevating the song. I was laughing because anyone who's done some songwriting and messed around, you know, you can put on a drum machine and start writing for that. It's so funny that to contemplate instead of trying to select a beat from GarageBand or program a a beat on your drum machine years back, you just start playing and Ringo comes up with the right beat while you're writing this song. I mean, what a, what a luxury, what a, what a, what a unimaginable thing that is. 
And the guy literally would, he stuck around. He stuck around in case he needed to, he would sit there for hours just in case someone started writing something and he needed to come up with a beat for it. And he always would. And then at the same time, you see Paul in particular and John do that thing where they, they, they start mouth singing him the drum parts. But it must be said, they will suggest in the quickest thing, like maybe, you know, you do a little bit more of a boom, 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 like just in the vaguest terms. And he picks it up in a millisecond and does the shift. It really shows why you'd want him in your band. You know, it's, Absolutely. it's incredible. And, and you're so right. What you were saying about Dig a Pony being one of the great Beatles guitar songs really kind of like on a stealth level. It's weird that it, it doesn't get as much attention as Day Tripper and other like Beatle riffs that you mentioned, but the, the guitar is so phenomenal as a song, but also that song is such a showcase for Ringo, you know, like the Ringo beat. The, the Beatles always did their best singing when Ringo was behind them because he could turn anything into, you know, but he was always listening to them. As he always said his rule was to play with the singer and he's always driving them on. So one of the reasons Dig a Pony is a Beatles song that nobody else covers because you can't do it without Ringo. How did you react to watching the the entire rooftop concert? I, I loved it. It was really beautiful. It was really moving. The music is fantastic. They sound so good on the rooftop. And you can tell that they're kind of surprised, especially John. It's really weird to see how John gets really sort of emotionally carried away during the rooftop because he totally like had backed away from this kind of experience and he had no idea that it was this much fun. And you can see how surprised he is consistently and that he keeps doing his goofy jokes between songs. It's like he's on stage for the first time and, and he's just, you know, extremely unjaded about it. And, and you could tell that he's thinking, you know, I'm John Lennon, I'm the most sarcastic bastard on earth. I have to find some way to take the piss out of this moment. And you just can't, you just can't do it. It's really kind of a beautiful thing. How about you? Yeah, I, I, I was fantastically moved. And I was actually moved in some cases by the, I know you didn't like the interview footage and there's probably a bit too much of it, but there was a couple moments when there's the moments of realization. There's a couple moments when someone in the street goes, it's the Beatles. And it just really moved me because it was the Beatles. And because when they were the Beatles, they were something so magical that John then had to sing, I don't believe in Beatles because he had believed in it so strongly. And because there was something that far transcended the sort of very human, as we see, limitations of these four people. The, the Beatles were, you know, were sort of magic with a K. They manifested something that was beyond. And it was actually Paul. It's actually, actually something that's how, what Paul once said to me about how he wrote yesterday, that it was magic with a K. There is something undeniably transcendent about what they were and, 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 what, and what they did. And you could see a couple moments of that in the street things where people's eyes just lit up because they were having an ordinary day and they're all of a sudden were the Beatles on a rooftop and that was still a thing that could happen. And that's, you know, that's beautiful, man. That's, <laughs> that's, that's really, really, really incredible. And it was sad when it, when it ended, when those eight hours ended. Uh, as much as some, for some people it was, it was way too many hours, it wasn't for me. I think the only, I was trying to think like, what would I cut if I had to cut? I, I think there's a couple, like, look, it's Peter Jackson. This is the guy who had nine endings in the, uh, Lord of the, the first Lord of the Rings movie. It's the guy who made The Hobbit, which is like 200 pages long into three movies. So I can see why people would say, okay, there's bloat. I don't really think so. I think there's, the only thing I might have cut for sure is that there's a long discussion with Dick James, who's a publishing guy, about the publishing catalog they've just bought. And I, I was like, I was like, all right, I, I'm personally glad to see it. But I, I was, I was thinking if there's one thing, maybe I would have snipped it. 
that part could have been a touch shorter. Uh, and there's also one bit before the rooftop concert where they're, they're singing two of us in yet another funny voice. And I was like, maybe, maybe we're good on that. But other than that, I think the eight hours, and I, I, would, I would still watch the bonus footage of which I, I presume there might be some when it comes on a Blu-ray or whatever. Peter Jackson is threatening an 18-hour director's cut, and I cannot wait. Wait, what? Really? Yes. 18 hours. That's what he says. That's, that's how he first submitted it to Paul. And, and, and Paul said, yeah, maybe, maybe try a smaller one. It's funny because there was that 100-minute version that they screened in theaters at the premiere uh, a few weeks ago. No idea what they kept from that. But it's funny that when I interviewed Peter Jackson last year for our cover story on, on the upcoming Get Back, and at that point, when I talked to him, he was still trying to cut it down to a two-and-a-half-hour movie. And you know, it was plainly like an insane kind of task. It's really good. They didn't try to do it that way. But yeah, I mean, I would, I get the only parts that I would just flat out cut would be the um, people in the street interviews, which, you know, are just a little too Monty Python in real life. <laughs> the, the Monty Python-ness is, gets a little out of control. Um, I, I think he was also trying to you a bit closely to the original Let It Be. I think actually, I think he was trying to encompass the bits because a lot of those were the same, actually, were the same street interviews used in the, in the, in the original movie, which is interesting. And it just uh, made me mad that they were in the original movie instead of stuff like, you know, like, I, I, I mentioned this before, but the scene where just, you know, they're in the control room, nobody say anything, and like Ringo is taking out a stick of gum and he offers some to Yoko. And Yoko isn't noticing him and so he has to elbow her a few times with the stick of gum. And, you know, and you see just like Yoko smile because he gave her a stick of gum and they just have this little quiet smile, just a tiny little moment in time. And it's weird to think of how that might have impacted all the years when you know when people had all these you know in, insane uh, awful things to say about yoko over the years it's weird to compare and contrast the two movies i, I but absolutely it, i will i will say you know and i just try to be realistic about what i'm seeing i, I think the moment after the rooftop concert when when john goes to yoko what's the matter is everything okay is is perhaps her getting scared that he's going to stay in the beatles <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder, I was, yeah. I kind of think that's what that was, or just you know, I mean, there's there's no doubt that there was that there was this push pull between Paul and Yoko with John. I mean, there's there's no doubt, and that in that moment it went to it went to Paul, uh, and it went to the Beatles, and and it, you know, it may have bummed her out. You know, she had a different vision for for their future. Overall, I, I think I think you get a, a very humanized portrait of Yoko. And there's also just, you know, it's hilarious that she's sitting there reading the newspaper while they're in the middle of, re- of rehearsing Let It Be in front of her. She's, you know, doing her correspondence. It's just, it's, it's all, and it, which actually tends to back the idea, what she says is that it was John who wanted her there. It wasn't her that wanted to be there. That makes it very uh, so clear, very clear. It makes it clearer. Yeah, because yeah. she's not that, she's not that, that interested, um, <laughs> to say the least. Uh, I, I do, again, you know, if you're a musician, you know, just having been in rehearsal rooms and stuff, they're very sensitive to the vibe. So it is very funny. If, if there's someone who's not enjoying it, it, it can, does interesting things to the, to the vibe. And I think that's that maybe more than anything else. I think if she had been there rocking out like Mo the whole time, maybe there the would have been less tension overall. But maybe it made them work harder in hopes that she'd get a little head nod from Yoko. You know, uh, she, she only likes George's blues songs. You, you know? know, like, <laughs> and, you know, Yoko had taste. Let's face it. It's so funny how many of my friends watching this movie are like, George Harrison in 1969 was the hottest man on earth. 
I've seen a lot of I've seen his, a lot his, of references his to that. Tight green pants. Like I don't know whether he has one <laughs> pair that he wears over and over, where the George has an entire vault full of you know green pants, just like Stevie Nicks's shawls. But the fact that George is able to just you know wear these like astoundingly flamboyant things to the studio. It's just kind of amazing. His taste in boots is completely insane. That at well, one point just, you see I'll, like his, yeah. his boots up on on the mixing desk. It's like you just put your feet up just because you want to show off those boots, George. And more power to you. I'm glad you did. Well, there's things that are so valuable. Just seeing how what a peacock Glenn Johns is, and you know, for people who, if you know your rock lore, I mean, this is someone you know the guy who produced Who's Next, the guy who produced Let It Bleed. You know, this is this is uh, no lightweight. But just to know that he's strutting around with this himself with this sort of star attitude is, is very, very interesting. It's you know, it's just so something you'd never know. You just, you just, you'd never know. It's also funny when Glenn tries to warn them off of Alan Klein and Lennon is just not listening. You know, Glenn says, you know, he just, he's trying, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, he's a guy who will, if he doesn't like your answer to a question, he'll just interrupt and change the subject. Like, it's quite shocking. And John's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really moving that like Glenn tries to warn him. And also, yeah, you can see that, you know, when John disengaged, he's, he's, he's just got these monosyllabic answers. He's not even listening. But Glenn is such a fascinating personality. And watching this, I realized this guy has produced so many of my favorite albums of all time and really know nothing about him. He never wanted to be in the spotlight. He never wanted to be celebrity producer. So even though, you know, everybody on earth knows all these songs he produced and he got just astounding peak sounds. So many great bands made their best album with Glenn Johns. And so to see his personality and, and that he's like very willing to just, you know, step up with, you know, ideas, corrections, notes uh, in a way that, you know, John most comically finds like really hysterical. At one point, like Glenn says, yeah, that take was really good. And John's like almost offended at the compliment. And he says, you're not talking to Ricky and the Red Streaks, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, I do love when Glenn Johns says, uh, Ringo, could you put a damper on your drum? John says, the only damper around here is you, Glenn Johns. But you can see, wow, you know, like when, you know, the Eagles have entire Cameron Crowe interview Rolling Stone cover stories where all they do is complain about Glenn Johns. You can see this is how he got such great albums out of people from Pete Townsend to, to Jimmy Page to, to all around the spectrum. He was able to just get them to do things that other producers couldn't get. Well, yeah, without diverging completely onto the Glenn Johns experience, it's, it's hilarious that later that same year he goes off and records Les Up on One. You know, it's just like, and he wrote a book that unfortunately is just doesn't really tell you anything you want to know. I'm sorry <laughs> but to hear it. See, seeing him in this documentary, though, told me everything I wanted to know, though. And it was, it was very, and I, listen, listen, there was no doubt, John was being a total dick to him. There's, there's no other way to, there's no other way to say it. And that's the kind of thing in the Jeff Emmerich book, you see that Jeff and other people around the Beatles didn't take that stuff lightly. John hurt feelings a lot with that stuff. You know, like, like he just, you know, he was, he was a spiky dude. Like he was, he was John Lennon and he wasn't, he wasn't there to be like a nice guy. Uh, but yeah, a couple, I love that they left it in. I mean, he was being like a, a, a total prick. To Glenn Johnson, and it, but it also just washed right over Glenn's back. I wish there was more about Magic Alex because it's one of my favorite things about the Beatles that they, you know, gave millions of pounds to this total con man who built a, among other things, built a studio that didn't work. And it's a little bit glossed over. Like they arrive at this studio that Magic Alex built for them, and none of it works. They have to bring in a, <laughs> they have to bring it up. I don't know about you. I've never seen code. the footage of 
Magic Alex's equipment malfunctioning. I was like, this is like many moments. I was like, this is like seeing the Holy Grail. I was like, wow, you know, we've heard so much about like what a terrible system Magic Alex built, like because he had absolutely no idea what he was doing. And he was just doing the, you know, the vibes in the room. And to actually see the equipment malfunctioning and to see how terrible it was, I was like, wow, unbelievable. Glad I get to see this with my own eyes. Very glad we don't have to see Magic Alex in person. Um, but yet yeah, really kind of amazing how Glyn Johns is, you know, such a pro and he's very used to dealing with prima donnas. Um, Billy Preston. I mean, it, it, everybody knows the stories of like how Billy Preston really elevated that band, those sessions, those people. But to actually see it happen in real time, oh my God, it's yes. just astounding. He walks into the room and all four of them just instinctively flock to him. And it, it's also unbelievable. Early on, I think it's the second day George is talking about, you know, well, the best band I ever saw was Ray Charles's band. Billy Preston is the greatest keyboard player. So that Billy Preston just, you know, comes in to the sessions and completely saves the day. And, and to see just his instinctive collaboration with the Beatles and how he brings out that playful collaborative side. It's just unbelievable to see. Just, uh, that's another magic with the K moment. You know, like when they needed Billy Preston, Billy Preston just stepped into the room. And he, in action, is one of the most astonishing musicians I've ever seen because he seemed to have music just flow out of him with almost no effort at all. He never asks anyone what the chords are. He seems to be telling them what the chords are in their own songs. He just starts playing. Sometimes he's smoking a cigarette with one hand and without even looking at the, at the keyboard, he's playing the right chords. Like He just seems to be just an astonishingly fluid musician. I mean, who does Little Richard get to play keyboards in his band? I mean, it's, it says it all. But he, he just, and, his, and the joy that he had throughout the whole experience is, is just incredible. And, and again, you know, no need to Google his final years. <laughs> just leave it in the 60s. There's some Every, sad stories like, here. There's some just, sad stories. Just, 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 you know, John's just, is still around, people. Let's enjoy that. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, let, let's one just, out of just 10, Paul, Paul's doing great. Everything ended yeah. up. Uh, Ringo's pretty, doing pretty great. Okay Paul's doing great. Like, Glenn Johnson's doing great. Um, but yeah, Billy Preston, like, you can see also just, you know, that everybody's used to Ringo being the one who cheers everybody up. Ringo is the team player in the room. And suddenly Billy Preston comes in and there's two team players in the field and they're a totally different band, a, a totally, and also just like you said about him being so fluent musically. I mean, when we think of Get Back, when we think of Don't Let Me Down, we think of these songs as electric piano parts. He's like the lead instrument on both those songs. It's so funny that those songs existed before he stepped into them, but Don't Let Me Down was already a great song before Billy Preston played on it, but you could see how he just transforms it and that's the first time he ever played it, you know, like that, that, that footage is not jumping around in terms of time. It's like he came in after lunch, he just ran into George Harrison in the lobby. George Harrison said, come upstairs, please come upstairs. He comes upstairs, he sits in completely unplanned. And that is him playing Don't Let Me Down for the first time. And this great part where like John says, take it during the solo and Billy plays a solo and John says, what, what happened? I said, take it. And he takes it. And John is just in shock that, you know, that, there's a musician who is doing that, and it just it elevates them all. It, it's just amazing whenever, to see him work. Whenever it appears on the screen, like this take appeared on the album, Let It Be, there's just something, it's, it's kind of goosebumpy, you know, because you, you, you realize you're seeing it happen. I love uh, that. And, and you re you're, really, you're realizing you're, something you've heard your whole life is now happening on screen in, in front of you, and, it, and it's part of the, the magic of the whole thing. And, it, and it's, 
it's quite a gift, and it, it's it's amazing that something could come out that sparks a new Beatles phase for me at this point in my life. That I w- I went back and reread a bunch of books, and this book Man on the Run about Paul in the Love 70s. Love that book, stayed, Tom Doyle, stayed great up, Paul Doyle yeah, bio. Stayed up late reading it because I wanted to have the next chapter of the story and I hadn't read the book and it was so satisfying. So it's magical and I hope there's other stuff out there like this, even if it's not the Beatles. I hope that we can get more. And I, I do want to say one thing that I think is underrated because you don't think about it is the incredible restoration, beyond restoration, of the film and the sound, the recreation, really. They took crappy-looking 16-millimeter footage from 50 years ago and made it look like it was shot yesterday on HD. It helps create that truly hallucinatory quality of the thing, where it feels like it's, it's happening now in front of you. It erases the distance between the past and now, and the same with the sound. There's so much work that people aren't thinking about that went into this. It's basically the, the kind of technology that makes a Lord of the Rings movie was put into making a Beatles documentary, and that's part of why it's, and you don't really think about it, but it's part of why this thing is so astonishing. And thanks so much, as always, to Rob Sheffield for joining me to talk about Get Back in the Beatles. And it only seems appropriate that while the Beatles have a new documentary out, so does the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson. Wanted to do a quick segment on that film before we go. And so I wanted to bring on the executive producer, co-writer, and host of Brian Wilson, Long Promise Road, Jason Fine. And what I love about this movie, among other things, is just seeing your friendship with Brian Wilson, which I've been hearing about and reading about for really many years, seeing it caught on film and your really unique and, and sometimes touching ability to bond with someone who's, you know, not, not easy to bond with. Yeah, you know, I've known Brian for, for many years, and he can be an intimidating and difficult guy to connect with, to talk to. I, I remember the, the very first time I went to his house, I was, you know, a young reporter, very nervous and intimidated to show up at this mansion in Beverly Hills to interview, you know, one of my heroes. And we sat down in his living room to talk. And after about 10 minutes of not saying much, he got up and left and just walked out. And I didn't really know what to do. Um, Should I leave? Should I wait? Is he coming back? And I decided just to wait a little while. And eventually, curiosity got the best of me. And I sort of just followed where I heard voices and found Brian in the kitchen looking in the refrigerator. And I said, hey, Brian, I'm still here, you know. <laughs> what happened? He said, oh, you know, sorry, you know, sometimes I get scared. And I said, oh, well, what'd you get, what'd you get scared? What, what scares you? And he said, you know, different things. Um, you know, like what a fool believes. That's a scary song, you know. And it was like sort of after that, we sort of broke through and it was kind of on. And I, I, I sort of recognized a- after that first meeting that, you know, you got to kind of be where Brian is and um, allowing him to have the space to kind of work at his own rhythms and sort of talk when he's ready and, 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 and not too much put too much pressure on the situation really helped. And I was kind of fortunate to cover him a lot for Rolling Stone over the years as he was 
had started to mount uh, a solo career and and started a new band and was doing all these things that I was covering for Rolling Stone and we sort of just got close over those years and that that comfort level of spending time together and I think you know sort of accepting him in the space that he's in and finding that certain points when he cuts through it's it's you know he can go deep and the way this movie came about is they kind of reached out to you for advice because again he's not an easy person to talk to and you had successfully talked to him for many articles over the years and you came up with the idea of just driving around with him and, and eliciting memories right and then they kind of became part of the project you know it's funny the, the the first time that Brian and I really drove around together was um, when we were putting together for Rolling Stone um, the thousandth issue and we were telling the stories of key covers in Rolling Stone's history and one of them was Brian in that famous cover um, shot by Annie Leibovitz where he's in his bathrobe on the beach with a surfboard under his arm. And I was going to tell that story. And I had gone the night before and found the beach and sort of was all ready. And when I approached Brian with the idea, he's like, let's go. I want to go to Malibu. And at that point, you know, which was like 10 years ago, we, we, he was driving, which was which was an adventure. And we drove down to Malibu and ended up going out to dinner and we just had a great time. And that just sort of began a thing that would happen whenever I would go to LA, we'd get together, take a drive, go eat. A lot of times down to Malibu, up through the hills, up through Mulholland. And he, you know, I sort of realized that this guy is, he's lived, you know, within 15 miles of where he was born all his life. And everywhere he looks, there's memories, there's songs he's written, there's little you know, things that have happened in his life that are important. And you sort of watch him look out the window of the car and and you hear him talk about different stories about different things that happened at, you know, passing Fairfax High or passing the old A&M Studios or whatever it is. So I just thought if we could do that in the movie, that would be a great thing. There's so many moments outside of Brian that are great in it. There's the bit with Don Was and the breaking down the tracks. What did you take away from that? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've always been just floored by, I mean, aside from, you know, just the emotional impact of, of a song like God Only Knows, you know, from Pet Sounds, um, um, is how did he do it? Like, how did he, they didn't record like like we record now, you know, where, oh, you you know, you get some guys in the Vienna orchestra to lay down some string tracks. And then, you know, like these guys were in a room together. And Brian was doing things like combining instrumentation, like a string section from the L.A. Philharmonic and then a banjo and a timpani and a, you know, bass drum or something, bass clarinet. And they all had to be in a room together and Brian had to tell them what to play. So he'd had to already think about that and know, oh, yeah, I really can imagine a banjo here across a bass clarinet and a string, you know, a string quartet. It's incredible that he was able to think that way in his mind. He had to plan these things out in advance and then bring them to life sonically in a room with all these people. And, you know, Brian was very sophisticated musically, but didn't know all the terminology, didn't know how to, you know, say what notes necessarily to play. He'd say something like, you know, make it sound more like rain or, 
you know, uh, you know, things, just these phrases. And, you know, imagine saying that to these guys from the LA Philharmonic. And, and that, I think, Don was, does a, such a beautiful job of breaking down those tracks. And he says in the film, you know, we still don't know how he did it. And I think that's, that's a big part of, of, of Brian's genius. And people who don't know Bruce on a deep level might not be aware of what a huge influence Brian was on, on Bruce, uh, musically and lyrically. He, he pretty much jumped at the chance to be in this documentary, it seems like. Yeah, you know, I mean, Bruce grew up in 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 another beach town across the continent, and the Bruce talks a lot about sort of the mythology that Brian created around the beach culture and the California culture. And you know, at a certain point in time, that was every kid's dream was to you know to go surfing and 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 go see the the you know the beaches of California. And, and Bruce talks beautifully about how that influenced him, how that worldview of the Beach Boys, the mythology that they created, um, sort of informed the way that he created his own um, world around the, the beach town that he grew up in. And, you know, Bruce also is someone who's struggled with depression um, and who has made joyous music from a deep an emotional place. And I think he connects with Brian in that way as well. And I know that Brian Wilson once said that his favorite movie of all time is Norbit, the Eddie Murphy movie. So I don't know how this movie now affects his rankings. What was his reaction to, to the final project? He loved it. Um, you know, he came last week, we did a screening in LA, which was really, really emotional to watch the movie with Brian you know, in in a movie theater on Pico Boulevard in Los Angeles. And he loved it. You know, I mean, I think he loves the camaraderie of it. He loves the sort of the the friendship of it. We went out to dinner beforehand and he said to me at dinner, um, he's like, you know, it's just like making the movie again, you know, and I think it's I think it's really that 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 appeals to him. The, the other thing that I think is really important for Brian is, you know, to tell his own story. Brian's story has been told so many times, but usually it's been told by other people who have some narrative point of view or some angle or some perspective, or, you know, in a lot of cases want something from Brian. I think the opportunity for Brian to be able to tell his story the way he wants to and to reflect on the things that he wants to that are important to him that have shaped his life in his own view is something that he hasn't really had the chance to do before. And I think that's, at this point in his life, as he nears 80, is is important and special to him. And again, the documentary is Brian Wilson, Long Promise Road, and it's very much worth your time. And, and Jason Fine, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. And that is today's episode. We'll be back next week on SiriusXM's volume, and we are, of course, a podcast. Download Rolling Stone Music Now, as a podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. That's particularly appreciated. But as always, thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week. Well. 
Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.